be presenting the Word of God to you this morning. Um, I've been a youth pastor for the past eight years at one church. It was a great ministry for me. And then I came on staff with back-to-back ministries in June. And God has overwhelmed uh, my wife and I with an opportunity here uh, to be able to change a generation, we believe, through the partnership with back-to-back and churches like Grace Chapel. But one thing that I miss about doing just daily youth ministry, and this may sound weird, but I miss writing three sermons a week. Um, on Wednesdays, I would speak to junior high students. On Sunday mornings, I would speak to high school and junior high students. On Sunday nights, I would speak to high school students. And then occasionally, I would get to speak to adults in an atmosphere. And the journey of being able to walk with God through his story in preparation to present it to an audience is a roller coaster ride that you want to ride over and over and over again. It's one where you get back in line and say, I can't wait to go through that turn and that twist, and I didn't notice that there the first time. And it's this awesome journey that you get off, and you're like, I can't wait to tell my friends about this amazing journey that I just went on. And that's what you normally get on a Sunday morning, whether it's Jeff speaking or John or whoever. It's this roller coaster journey that they've been on through the week, and you get to, to hear the, the response of God to them. Am I better? Can I, I know I, I have to be annoying right now. Is that, is that good? Am I good now? Okay, good. Whew. Sorry, my little P's and T's were sounding really, really harsh in that microphone. But I love to preach the Word of God. You, you're a blessed church um, to be led by the pastor that you have who brings the Word on a weekly basis. Uh, I, I can see in Jeff's eyes and hear through his voice and then watch as your lives are transformed how deeply he speaks the word of God and how it connects you to him. And that's overwhelming. And you should be thankful that you're being led by such a godly man. At the same time, last Sunday, I left with a new soundtrack in my head for old people. I don't know about you, but I left and when I went to the grocery store and I saw an elderly couple, Kenny G started playing in my head. I was so distraught at where that was going to take my mind. And I came to realize Jeff asked me to speak today because he knew he would be counseling so many of you with the same problem that he wouldn't have time to write a sermon because you kept picturing your grandparents and Kenny G. If you weren't here last week, I don't know that I really have to explain that. Um, It's pretty much self-explanatory. That was a a moment for me that I'm sitting in the back and I knew what I was preaching on today and I'm listening to this story and I'm watching Jeff hike his pants up uh, higher and higher as an illustration to you of how pants go higher the older that you get and they go lower when you're when you're a young guy and I'm sitting in the back and I'm listening to the laughter in the room and I'm I'm watching the engagement and I'm going Jeff you asked me to preach on Sodom and Gomorrah next week which is next in the story of Abraham, and you had so much fun with the audience the week before. There is no way that I'm going to be successful at this. If you're talking about an old man pulling his pants up, and I'm getting ready to talk about hellfire and brimstone. And how does that work together uh, in the next week? But I am excited about this passage of Scripture. I am excited about this because it is built on the promises of God. And then if you've been here for the past few weeks through this series, then you're listening to stories and sermons built on what God's promises are for us and how we should respond to them. And it should be exciting to you. 
It should be like Christmas morning where each week you come in and, you're, and you see another gift that has your name on it and you think there can't be one more under the tree because I've already received too much. And then when you open it and you see the gift that God offers you this week through this gift builds on the gift that he offered last week and is exactly what you need to get through the next week. That's the story of God. When you engage in a relationship with him and read this as if it's his story and not ours, if it's about him showing us who he is and what he's promised and not what we get and what we should be asking for, all of your needs will be met. This will be the story of all stories for you. However, if we read it and say, what do I get from this? What are you offering me? We'll miss who he really is And what he offers will be tainted by our lack of understanding of the God who's giving it. You'll still get the gift. You may still be able to go through your entire life satisfied with it. However, the more you know the central character of this book, the better the gift gets. Last week we realized that as we uh, went through together Genesis chapter 18 where Abraham and Sarah are told again that they would be blessed with a child when they were well on into their 90s, close to 100 years old. That's a great gift. If you're a parent and you've stood in that delivery room and heard the, the cry for the first time, you know how great of a gift that is. You know how overwhelming it is the first time that you hold. Maybe it's your brother, sister, niece, nephew, or your own child and look at it and say... Wow. Wow. And if you're a parent and you look at it and say, Wow, you think I can really handle this? Whew, that's overwhelming. I can remember that feeling holding my daughter thinking, You've entrusted her to me? You must think more of me than I think of me. Because I don't think I deserve this. And that Abraham standing there and thinking that he had tried it his way and said, okay, God, you promised us 30 years ago that you would provide us with a child. And so Sarah came up with a great idea and said, here, take one of our servants and make a child with her because she's young and she would be able to conceive. And that's probably what God wanted. That's still not what you wanted it to be with the one I love. Wow. They were overwhelmed. I don't know if you've ever had one of those spiritual high moments where you've just been overwhelmed by the presence of God. If you haven't or if it's been a while, I'm going to reiterate next Sunday night here at 6 o'clock. This night is being prayed over as if the presence of God were going to be here in a powerful and moving and overwhelming way. He's with us daily and that sustains us. And sometimes you eat daily and then sometimes it's time to come to the feast the meal that you're going to talk about for days and weeks and months. And even when you're full, you're going to keep coming back to eat more. That's next Sunday night. If you're hungry, if you're starving, or if you just want to come to a feast and celebrate who God is and allow Him to overwhelm you, and you are in need of just a spiritual encounter, a mountaintop experience where God shows up and you are overwhelmed by His presence, next Sunday night in this room at 6 o'clock. We're not telling you that we're going to create it because it can't be created. We're telling you that we're praying over it and we've invited God to be here in an overwhelming way and we believe that when His people invite Him in with a pure heart, He shows up. And then it becomes a really, 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 really fun party. One that you're going to want to be a part of. I've been a part of a few parties like that in student ministry, especially over the past few years. One that stood out among the rest happened 
in 2006, the summer of 2006, I was the dean of a week of camp uh, in Butler Springs Christian Camp outside of Hillsboro, Ohio. If you've ever been to the middle of nowhere, you've been to Butler Springs. And it is right there. And we had several churches, about 20 churches, who had come to this event with us on a yearly basis. And we had been struggling for years to try to capture the presence of God in a way that would transform a generation and not just send them home with another cool youth event that they would chalk up as a spiritual high and then go back to their chaotic lifestyles. We wanted them to live transformed lives, completely changed and we started to look at the week and we thought, man, so many years, year after year, students come in, they lock up all their emotions inside, and then by Thursday or Friday night, they have, they have them all pinned up because they know it's going to be cry night at a week at camp or a mission trip or whatever, and then they're going to just like, all over us. And it's going to be all of this muddy mess that we're going to, that's good that we wanted to hear, but then what we always feel discouraged is by Friday morning, we're waking up and going, man, Last night was powerful and it was amazing and people confess things. We've got less than 24 hours to empower them to get back into the world and to defeat the enemy and to be able to actually live this life. It's not going to happen. And so our philosophy in 2006 was, what if we can get them to share their junk, to trust us with their junk on Sunday night, which is the day it started. And then we've got the rest of the week to build warriors for the kingdom of God to actually train what it means to live a spirit-filled life. Is that possible? And if so, how do we do it? And so we got to the week of camp. We had our game plan worked out. We got there on Sunday, and the presence of God was so overwhelming that it happened. Sunday night, all the girls who fought over the same guy reconciled their relationships. All the guys who were into pornography... So all the guys um, confessed their struggle with pornography. It was awesome. It was great. They were moving forward and we're like, yes, yes, yes. And people are coming to Christ and, and the world is changing in that moment because we're looking at it going, it's not Thursday. And we even had students walk out of the room of the main session. They were like, I was holding all that up for Thursday. What are we going to do on Thursday now if we did that on Sunday? Because they were expecting this huge spiritual high and they'd never experienced a week where they had the huge spiritual high on the beginning of the week. Well, we'd never led one either. So we're going, okay, hold on tight. Roller coaster you've never ridden before. And we jumped on and weaved through this week and offered training and spiritual leadership to teach students how to, how to live within the realm of, of being uh, filled by the Spirit and to, to find their platform for change and to speak to individuals and to pray over them and encourage them. And by Friday, we're getting to the end of the week and we're going, wow, they've been trained, they're ready, they're not going to just kind of you know, throw out all this, this surface level sin that keeps them from actually dealing with the issues in their life. We've dealt with the simple symptoms, now we can, we can get the cause out and we can actually transform lives. And so I sat down with our worship band and I'm like, what do you, what do you think about tonight? How, how should we make this worship experience and teaching time? And they're like, we're kind of at a loss because they've been going deeper all week. What do we do? Like we did eight songs last night. Do we do 12 tonight? Like do we just go sing for four hours? At what point do you stop singing but you're in the middle of nowhere so you can't really start doing yet because everyone here is living for the cause or says that they're living for the cause. Do we just send everybody home? Hey, we're going to end camp early. Go change the world. Um, we weren't sure what to do. And so we prayed about it and said, all right, let's prepare what we think God would want us to say to him and then let's let him have control. And we walk into this main session bunch of sweaty high schoolers in this room 
had a fog machine and a really good band, and it's just, oh, it's just nuts in this room. And these students are up front, you know, they're, they're all competitive, so they got to see who can jump the highest during worship and whose eyes can stay closed the longest. And it's just crazy as how they're worshiping, but the, the, the fluidity of it and just the rawness is awesome. I'm just loving the feeling in the room in these, like, really fast-paced songs that I'm looking at going, ah, that speaker might fall off the stage um, because there, people are just jumping and just excited so much about God. And then we get into kind of our medium-paced set, and we start this song. And the words of the song specifically beg God to overwhelm us so that we can then live according to His will and that we'll wait on God until we're so overwhelmed that we can't help but live for his will and this song started and you just saw in this room one by one students just not no one had spoken anything from the stage but they just started falling face down on the ground a couple hundred people are just laying face flat on the ground as the band is starting to sing and then i stop hearing the band for a second because i look over and the band is face down on the ground i walk out thinking supposed to preach and I go to open my mouth and nothing came out and I'm like not supposed to preach and I stepped back and we started listening and a whisper started and then it started to get louder the students in the room started to take the words of the song and make it their own prayer and they started to sing it out and over and over and over they went about that for 20 minutes straight singing the same chorus over and over begging God to do what the scripture says that we were singing that he promised to do and they just kept singing over and over and I walked out and finally got one verse out and I read the verse and behind me they kept singing the whole time. And this is the crowd, no one on stage, this, people on stage are just laying flat silent, not allowed to sing or play or anything. God is just saying, let my people talk to me. And they just keep singing this song and I step back and all of a sudden different prayers start to happen in the room and healing starts to, to happen in the room. Physical healing, emotional he healing, spiritual healing is happening in this room and people are just kind of moving around while the song still goes. The masses are still singing the song but individuals who had something deeper that needed broken free are starting to break free. So people are claiming to go into full-time ministry and all this stuff and two hours later, same chorus. Two hours and 20 minutes straight. Can't get a high schooler to do something for five minutes straight. Two hours and 20 minutes straight. We finally look and go, I think the song's done. We're supposed to go baptize people. And we would go down and we baptize 15 students who hadn't been baptized. And as we finished baptizing the 15th student, um, then the band comes running. They were still laying face down on the stage while we were baptizing people. They still couldn't move. And they come running out of this room and running down to us. And they're like, we're supposed to worship. And I'm like... Thank you, Captain Obvious. Um, I think so, too. And they're like, no, we, we, we're allowed to play again. And I'm like, oh, that's good, because if I had to play, it was going to be, be real bad. Um, and so I'm like, all right, let's get everybody back up to the gym. So everyone starts to move up to a gym, and a, a youth leader jumps. We had this golf cart that the dean got to drive around. And the youth leader jumps into the golf cart, and he's like, adults, I love adults. He's like, we're supposed to go to campfire in 10 minutes. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Did God tell you we're supposed to go to campfire? And he's like, no, it's on the schedule. And I'm like, why would we go to campfire? Where did we see God last? He's like, um, the gym. I'm like, so where should we go back to? He's like, um, 
well, if we go to campfire, students are supposed to lead worship tonight. I'm like, okay, again, where did we see God last? He's like, um, the gym. I'm like, okay, I'm going to the gym. If you want to go to the campfire, that's cool. He's like, I'll ride up to the gym with you, but I still think we should go to campfire. And this guy was like, going to go with the schedule. We get to the foyer of this big gym, and there are 200 pairs of shoes on the floor. Again, no one told the students... Read Exodus chapter 3, and you will see that when Moses goes to the top of the mountain and sees the face of God, God says, take off your sandals because this is holy ground. No one told them that. They just started to walk in, and the presence of God was so heavy that they took their shoes and socks off and walked into this room, expecting the presence of God to be as heavy as when they left the room. And they go back in and continue to worship, and at 4 o'clock in the morning, finally God kind of closes the night down for us, and we go to bed. It was an awesome moment. I saw some some chains broken in that moment that I have never experienced in my life. We saw different ways in which God was reconciling relationships that I thought would never be reconciled and that would damage student ministries. We saw youth pastors and students reconciling with one another. We saw ministries start to take form. Ministries that are flourishing now started to form in that room as worship was happening and as God was overwhelming the room. And then we all went home to live it out. Then we came back to camp, 2007, Sunday night. Band starts to lead worship. I get up and share a message. And we finish the, the, the message and walk off the stage and the students go to their next activity and I look at the band and I'm like, do you feel that wall between us and them? I mean, did you, did you feel, I felt like I was banging my head on a concrete wall and that there were desperate people on the other side and I could not find like the, the switch to get this door to open and just us be able to be in there with them. And they're like, we are so glad that you saw it because we thought you were going to fire us because we were so bad at leading worship tonight because they just weren't doing anything that we you know, tried to lead them into. And I'm like, no, nah, it, was, it was us and them mixed together. And there's something going on here. And I was like, what do we do? They're like, we don't know. And that year, we had decided to pray for 24 hours straight the entire week. We had a, a prayer room set up. And we had at least one person in the room for 24 hours a day straight. And so we went to this prayer room together as a team and just started to pray. And at the end, I went to the worship leader and said, I think we're supposed to sing that song from last year. And he looked up and he was like, I promise never to sing that song again. Because after you do something for two and a half hours on one night, kinda, it kind of loses its luster a little bit after that. And there's the possibility that people will fall in love with the moment instead of the God that created the moment. And we were really wanting to protect from that i'm like i think we're supposed to sing it tomorrow night i think we need to start there so monday night we get in the main session the students come down the front and we start into their song three four students start hitting their faces on the ground and the masses start worship leader sings through the song two times which is what we had in the set and then literally we weren't going to dwell on it this time we weren't going to recreate the same moment so he starts going into the next song and the crowd starts singing that chorus from the year before over and over and over and over he's he's into verse one of the next song and they're still trying to beat him it's a battle now and i walk out on stage and say hold on time out if god fulfilled that promise a year ago why are you asking him to do it again a year later? Is it because he wasn't so powerful to move that way last year? 
Or is it because he was powerful, but when you added his covenant to the chaos of your daily life, you went through an entire year and you haven't heard from him since, you think, and you haven't talked to him since, and you haven't seen movement, so the last place you saw God was during this song, so you're going to come back and you're going to recreate it, hoping that he's still there. But guess what? He's not. In scripture, it is continual that God appears to us in different forms over and over and in different ways. He doesn't appear the same way twice. And if we keep going back to those sacred altars that we've seen him in the past, he's moved on because he expects us to move on. See, this is the promise of God that we're going to address today. Is that when God's covenant meets the chaos of our life, he expects us to move the covenant into the chaos with him. Not wait on him to remove all the chaos and then bring us back to covenant. This was true for Abraham. In Genesis chapter 18, where we pick, we pick up where we left off last week, Abraham and Sarah have just been blessed. They're going to have a child. It's going to be their child between Abraham and Sarah. It's not going to be their way of doing it. It's not going to be another version of Ishmael. Ishmael is a son. God's going to bless that son. Even though Abraham didn't do it God's way, God's going to bless his son Ishmael. But that was not the promise that God made. That was not the covenant. So God whispers it again to Abraham and Sarah. You're going to have a kid. And Sarah laughs. And you could view this as God's response first off of him judging Sarah, or you could view it as a God who loves his kids, who's responding to them by playing. And he's like, Sarah, why are you laughing? I didn't laugh. That's just ridiculous. He's going, don't laugh. I'm going to make it happen. You're going to be a mom. And it's probably that nervous laughter that she got. If you've ever gotten it, when something is so good, it almost makes you laugh nervously because you don't think it's true. And you're unsure if you really want to put that much hope into that. She wanted to be a mom. Even more so than before. Since Ishmael's birth, we see that later with her issues with Hagar and Ishmael. Sarah wanted to be the mom. And when he said, no, it's still going to be you. She's like, (laughs) okay, if you want to. I want to. I want to bless you with that. So here's Abraham and Sarah with God in their presence. And they're giddy, just excited. And then... Verse 16, when the men got up to leave, these are the two angels in the Lord, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And so the covenant meets the chaos. You see, when we're on a mountaintop experience with God, and God just pours out all these cool things that he wants to do in our life, and he overwhelms us, and we're like, you would do that? We worship him. But even this verse right here is saying how God took it into, into contemplation of saying, hmm, he loves the good stuff. But I got to talk to him about Sodom. Do I involve him in this? He's going to be the father of many nations. He's going to bring people to me. Is he ready to see this side of me through the right lens? Or is he going to see this side of me as a mean, cruel God who's judging people? And then God goes on to say, the, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is too great. Their sin is too great. I have to go in and see if it's as bad in reality as what I'm hearing it is, so then I'll know what to do. And Abraham's response is what most of our responses are once we put the covenant into the chaos. We question God. Abraham assumes the worst. 
the two men go off to Sodom, the two angels. God stays next to Abraham, knowing Abraham wants to talk to him about this because he's listening in on the conversation, because God intentionally had the conversation in front of Abraham. He has a tendency to do that at times. Isaiah is the same. In Isaiah chapter 6, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are looking around going, who can we send? Who can we send? Well, the only person in the room is Isaiah. And Isaiah's like, pick me, pick me. God was like, I already picked you. That's why I showed up here. I just wanted you to pick you. And he does that. And so he wanted Abraham to hear this because he wanted to see how Abraham would respond to him now. And he wanted Abraham to understand his character. So Abraham comes up and says, you would destroy a whole town of, uh, if there are righteous people in there? One, he's assuming that there are righteous people in there, which he doesn't know. He's not all-knowing. But he's not assuming that the all-knowing God would have already taken that into consideration. And Abraham, for the first time, says, if it's, if it's okay, if, if you're not going to smoke me with fire, could I ask you, if there's, 50, if there's 50 righteous people in that town, would you save it? God's like, I'll give you 50. If there are 50 righteous people in that town, I will save that town. He's like, okay, well, you didn't, you didn't destroy me and you didn't shut me up. So can I ask you, if there were 45, would you save it? If there's 45, I'll save it. 40? Sure. 40 minus 5? Uh, 35? Yeah. 30? Can I get 20? Do I hear 10? 10 righteous people, Abraham. And I will save that town if I find ten in there. And Abraham, thinking that he has bartered a great deal with the creator of the universe, proud of himself, goes home. Got a kid out of this deal, saved the town today on a day's work. And he heads off home thinking that he just bartered the righteous from Sodom and Gomorrah to be able to save the town. And then the actual story of these two towns unfolds. The two angels get to the gate of the town. And there is Lot waiting. We don't know if he's waiting on them necessarily, but he's waiting on something. It could be one of two things. He's been the one who's crying out against Sodom. And he's waiting on messengers from the Lord to come tell him what he's going to do. Or two, he's just waiting on anyone who might try to go into that town that will destroy them and because his house is right outside the town he waits at the gate and when a traveler comes he says here let me feed you let me give you what you need don't go in there i'll take care of your needs and then move on because he knows anyone that goes in doesn't come out and the reason that they don't come out is not because they walk in and it's disney world it's because when they walk in everything about them is torn apart that they will be raped that they will be destroyed, that they might even be killed. We're led to believe that, that it's the latter because when these two angels appear in the form of men, Lot stands up and says, let your servant host you tonight. Come to my house. Spend time with me. And the two servants say, no, we're going to go stay in the town square. And he is bent on them staying with him. No, please, you don't understand. You need to stay at my house tonight. Don't go in there. I'll go in there later and get your stuff. I, I need you to come with me for your sake. And it says that by the time they get to the door of Lot's house, all the men of the town, the young men and the old men, every one of them have come out of the town and are standing in front of Lot's house and saying, Hey, Lot, just take two guys in there. Send them out so we can rape them. 
Here's how bad the scenario was. Lot's response was, you can't have them, but I have two virgin daughters. Why don't you take my daughters and rape them instead? That was like the lesser of two evils for him. That was the best he could offer to try to keep these men protected is to offer his own daughters. That sounds in bad shape. The men keep pushing forward and say, Lot, don't question us. We'll, we'll do worse to you than what we're going to do to these men. And they start coming in on, on the house and the two men pull Lot in. And you know because they have gifts from God, they overwhelm the crowd with blindness so that they can't find the door. And they turn to Lot and say, get your family and get out. Run. Go to the mountains. And Lot, like Abraham, thinks that orders from the Lord aren't the best for him. His response is, the mountains, I think I'll die there. There's a town over here. It's a small town. It's actually called small. You wouldn't destroy the small town, would you? How about I just go to the small town? And the Lord's like, all right, go to the small town. You're going to end up in the mountains anyway. Go ahead and go to the small town first. And Lot takes off toward the small town. And he's told, do not look back. He doesn't, but his wife does. His sons-in-law who were engaged to be married to his two daughters, the two virgins that we read about, they wouldn't listen to Lot and they stay back. His two daughters come with him. His wife leaves with him. She turns around. She turns into a pillar of salt because she was told, do not turn around. And she still turned around and looked back on the destruction that was overwhelming this city. And so Lot and his two daughters go to the town. And when they get to the town, they're like, oh, it's dangerous here. Let's go to the mountains. Genius. God told him to go to the mountains in the first place. And then we have it written that it says, but Lot was saved because God remembered Abraham. God didn't show up on Abraham's door and say, I found three. Abraham knew that. He looked down and saw, one, two, there's, there's my nephew Lot, one, two. It's only three. We made a deal for ten. It'd be a bad day for that town. Because there weren't more than three. And really, it looks like there was one righteous man because his daughters then got him drunk and slept with him to make babies. After that, who needs daytime television? And you have the book of Genesis. So there's one righteous that comes out. And God even lets two unrighteous daughters come out who are going to do things their way because he honored Abraham because God is not a God of judgment God has to be a judge there's several things we learn in this story first that God wants to bless us Abraham and Sarah and a child God wants to bless us overwhelmingly he wants to invite us in his story he wants to shower his promises on us two God is compassion to those who are being oppressed he heard the cry and he went down to see if it was as bad as the heart cry that he heard what cry is he hearing probably the cry of those who were being destroyed and molested inside that town that those cries were coming up to God the lonely the broken that those who were dying inside of Sodom and Gomorrah are coming up to God and God said, I've had enough. I will come down. But that God also wants to listen to our input. That Abraham came to him and, and God didn't say, who's wearing the big G on their shirt today, Abraham? That'd be me. So why don't you just go home and make babies? Like I told you to. He didn't say that. He said, yeah, talk to me about it. If you want to see if I'm righteous or not, let's, 
talk it out. God wants to hear from us and allow us to join in who he is by us processing our human perspective of him in a way that he can give us a divine response, that he can answer us in his way. And if we're not allowed to talk about it, if we just have to do, then we don't have free will choice. And God wanted us to choose. He wanted Abraham to choose to follow him. And in order to choose, he, wanted, he needed to have a voice. And God gave him a voice. Did God already know that there weren't more than three righteous people in that entire town? Absolutely. He's all-knowing. Did Abraham know how God acted as judge yet? No, he didn't. He didn't understand it yet. The story is about the characters of God, characteristics of God, not of Abraham. God will be judge, so you don't have to. Just take that burden off your shoulders this morning. You know those people around that you're not sure, like, are they heaven, are they hell, are they saved, are they lost, are they, are they going to get an opportunity to hear the gospel, are they not? Are they, the burden that you feel for them, the burden of sometimes in some of the ways we're wired of telling them what they have to do to be saved, of, of like, you know, judging them to Jesus, take the burden off. God will be the judge in the best way possible. If you look at this story, he gave every opportunity possible. Once he heard the heart cry, then he still sent his angels to check it up. That if, if it's not as bad as we've been told it is, then I will know. That God reserves judgment. There's a story that I recently read that just kind of captured this concept for me. This man had lost a daughter. Because she had been abducted and murdered. He had gone away to wrestle with God as to whose fault that was. Is that this man's fault? If it is, and I believe in God, why is the man still alive and my daughter isn't? Is it God's fault? If it's God's fault, how do I worship a God who would let a little innocent child die and a murderer stay alive? was the question that he had. God took him into this cave scene that started really dark. And as this man started to understand God, the cave got lighter and lighter. And they started out with a discussion on who should be judged. And God looked at the man and said, if you are God, who would you judge? Go ahead, judge. He's like, I, I can't judge. He's like, no, you do, though. Like, how about rapists? How about murderers? Should they be judged? And he's like, yes, they should be judged. He's like, okay. If you can judge like me in my role, then judge like me in my role. You have five living children. Pick two to come to heaven and three to go to hell. You want to be me, be me. Pick two. His father is just like, I can't pick. I can't pick two. You're asking me to pick between my, my children. I love them all equally. I love them all the same. I see the beauty in all of them. I see all these things. I can't pick two. This is impossible. You, what you're asking me is impossible. And he's like, no, it's not. You do it every day with people that you don't know. And he's like, yeah, that's the key. I've never thought about this with people that are close to me. He's like, okay, pick two. He's like, what if, what if all five went to heaven and I went to hell for eternity? Would you take that? And God was like, now you get my perspective. Now you get me. If I'd send my son for your sin for all of eternity so that you could come with me and everyone would have a chance equally, I'd pick that route too. And I did. That's why you can't be judged. 
is because you don't understand the level of sacrifice that I went through to its fullest in order to give everyone an opportunity. I want a God like that, don't you? I want a God who's not going to be based on what I did today, but it's going to be based on who I am with Him. It's going to be based on my relationship, that my actions on a given day are not going to get me to heaven. But my relationship with Him, Hebrews 12.1 says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, that when we make a mistake, He perfects it as He teaches us. As he guides us not to make the mistake again. So we have Abraham and Lot in this situation. Standing up and saying, well, I'll be judge and I know what's best for my life. God's response is, I'll let you work it your way. And when you realize how wrong you are, I'll show you in love how what I did was best for you and for everyone else. And I always lay my life down first. I always go first. You'll never have to if you're living under my promises. God will be judged. You don't have to be. God also wants you to live under an umbrella of grace in your relationship with him. If the story had ended with Sodom and Gomorrah going up in smoke, Abraham has packed up his tents, his caravan moving on, my thought would be as the credits were about to roll that Abraham got the picture and that he became a follower of God who completely submitted to what God wanted because he looked back and said, you were so right and I was so off. But we have Genesis chapter 20 instead of credits. Genesis chapter 20 starts where Abraham rides into a new section of his travels and the king Abimelech of that area takes women to be his wife. So as Abraham comes into this land, he looks at his wife, Sarah, in her late 90s, in mid-90s at least, by that point, and looks at her and says, pretend you're my sister, so that way I won't die. How illogical is this? God has chosen me to be the father of many nations. He has promised me that my wife and I are going to have a child. My wife and I have not yet had a child, which would mean that I would need to be on this earth in order for my wife and I to have a child. And yet I am going into the area of a king who wants to take my wife and maybe kill me. I should trust myself to keep my life alive. That's illogical. If God's going to make me the father of many nations, he's going to make me the father of a child, I should just go, oh, well, I don't have to worry about my wife and me because, you know, this king has, he can't touch me because God's just going to take care of me and he's going to give me through. I'm the father of many nations. She can't touch me. But he looks around and goes, hey, act like you're my sister. And she's like, I'm his sister, Sarah. King Abimelech takes her to his home. In the middle of the night, Abimelech wakes up because he's seeing God in a dream and God says, if you touch her, you're dead. <laughs> he's married tons of women. First question <laughs> could have been, which one? Who? But he knew exactly who it was. He knew that someone that was, being, that was overwhelmed by the presence of God had come into his kingdom because he went straight to Sarah and said, who are you really? You're married to him, aren't you? Why would you do this to me? Why would you put your God against me? You see, the covenant enters the chaos and we make a mess. Abraham made a mess. But this morning is not about us judging Abraham. It's about finding freedom in the promises of God. Because Abraham was said to be the father of 
many nations, as well as a man of faith that we should model our life after. Why? Because he made mistakes? Yes, because he made mistakes and then continued to chase God and allowed God to teach him on the way. I don't know what you've got going on inside, but God wants to teach you on the way. He wants to take you through the journey of heartbreak and loss, of joy and victory, and he wants to promise you the same thing he promised Abraham, that I'll be with you, I will guide you, I will overwhelm you with blessing, I am a compassionate God, I will be the judge when a judge is needed, I will take care of everything, just let go and let me take this. It was a year ago this month that I got a phone call from a high school senior. She was hard to understand on the phone, just crying a lot. She said, my dad in the hospital, that's about all I got. I get to the hospital and her father on his way to work at about 6 o'clock in the morning and had a heart attack. It was 17 minutes before anyone found him, 17 minutes without oxygen. He's laying in ICU when I get there and his hands were already purple. And I could look at him and, and the logical part of me looked and said, only a miracle. I mean, this, this body is just a shell. It's shutting down. God can definitely breathe life back into it. We prayed over him there and walked outside to his daughter and she was slumped over on a wall and I sat down next to her. I said, what do you want from this? What are you begging God for? So I'll beg God for the same thing. You tell me what you're begging God for and I'll join you. And with tears in her eyes, she said, I just want my daddy healed. I said, you know that can happen more than one way, right? He's got a bad heart. God can breathe life straight back into him and he can be healed here. Or God can place him next to his throne. And he can be healed there. Is that what you're praying for? And she's like, whatever God wants. If he's ready to see my dad, I'm ready for my dad to see him too. Because it'd be selfish for me to keep him here. I don't know how I'm going to walk down the aisle without him. I don't know what it's going to look like at graduation. But I want my dad healed and I trust my God. I'm looking at her going, are you 18 or 50? She stood up, walked back in, and we prayed for healing. About four days later, her dad took his last breath and went home. And a platform for her opened up to start speaking to other girls without dads. To walk into a room and say, you know what? I could question God for taking my dad my senior year of high school and I could blame him, but I won't because I know where I will see my dad again. And my objective now is to be a woman worth getting to the same place my dad is. How will we live today? Will we live based on a, a promise of a God that he will bless you in the midst of the chaos of your life? We have houses of worship for us to feel good about God and a lost world outside that's overwhelming Christians with chaos as much as it is anyone else. Because if we were to take this God out there all the time, 
things would change. Maybe this morning you need to change, and here's how we're going to end. I want to read a promise from God to you. While you think about that thing you have to overcome, allow God to speak it to you. Maybe there isn't anything that you need to overcome. Maybe there's something that someone around you that you've been begging for God to overcome it in their life. And maybe this morning has given you a different way to beg God to overcome something. And you need to talk to him about that. But for a lot of us in this room, I know that there are things below the surface. Not the surface issues that are the symptoms, but the actual causes of our apathy or our inconsistency or our confusion or maybe even depression for some of us. God just wants to speak his truth over you. God is strong enough to walk in and just break that chain free on you this morning. And so I'm going to read, and I just want to give you a little disclaimer on this. This was written by Paul, but I'm going to read it as if God is speaking first person to you. So the places where it says God and he, I'm just going to change it to God praying this over you, which is what he did when he wrote it. He just used a man to pen it. I want to encourage you to close your eyes and just allow God to speak this promise over you and allow him to bring to light anything that you need to let him overcome in your life. Then Jen's going to sing a song. And as she sings, if you feel the joy of a weight lifted, of a burden released, and you're ready to take something out of this room, worship with her. You can stand and sing. You can lift your hands high. You can stay bowed and just whisper whatever you need to do, not what you think you should do. Whatever you need to do to have release this morning. Prayer of God to you. You are all my sons and daughters through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time is set by his father. So also, when you were children, you were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, I sent my son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that you might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, I sent the spirit of my son into your heart. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, I have made you an heir to my kingdom. Live free.